and welcome to In the Interest of National Security. I'm Professor Ryan Vogel, Director of the Center for National Security Studies at Utah Valley University. And I'm Jonathan Rudd, a professor in the National Security Studies program. Our guest today is retired Army Colonel Michael Smith, who is a currently a professor in the National Security Program here at UVU. Prior to joining the faculty here at UVU, Mike had an extensive career in the U.S. military where he started as a paratrooper, served in the Special Forces, and spent the vast majority of his time serving as a judge advocate in the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General Corps. He holds multiple degrees and is considered an expert in international and national security law. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for the chance to to be with you. Mike, could you give us a brief overview of your career and how you ended up becoming an attorney for the U.S. Army? Okay. Uh, it might be helpful to to know that I, I spent about 40 total years in the military, just from the beginning. But um, of those 40 years, 27 were as, as, as a JAG. And, and I'll tell you why I'm, I'm bringing that up here in just a second. But I started out, as, as you said in my introduction, I started out as an infantryman in the 82nd Airborne Division. I was a rifleman just with, with everybody else, uh, you know, at that time uh, as a rifleman in the 82nd Airborne. And then I got out. My, my term of service in ended and I left the military and I actually served a mission for my church for a couple of years right after getting out. And then I decided to start school after that. And I joined the Army Reserves uh, as part of that. And uh, I, I enlisted for the 12th Special Forces Group. So uh, I went through Special Forces training and became uh, a Special Forces Weapons Sergeant. And I, I did that through law school, actually. I was in law school and I was working as a you know, part-time as an Army Reservist, uh, as a uh, Special Forces Weapons Sergeant. And then I made a decision to go in the JAG Corps. I, and uh, and so I, I applied for the JAG Corps and, and spent the next uh, 27 years in the JAG Corps. We lived in a, about 17 different places, and I had all sorts of different jobs and found them all to be very interesting. I, I re- originally went in the JAG Corps with the idea that I was going to do three years and get out and try to become a U.S. attorney or maybe an FBI agent or something. I didn't plan on making it a career, but once I got in there, I enjoyed it so much and I felt at home there that I decided to stay. That's great. Mike, for this podcast, we'd kind of like to focus actually on the JAG Corps and, you know, what what the JAG Corps is, what a judge advocate does. But to kind of build up to that, can you explain how someone becomes a member of the JAG Corps? Yeah. Now, there are a lot of different routes uh, to, to becoming a JAG, and every service kind of has its own unique ways of, of, of handling, uh, you know, accessions. But uh, the, the common practice is first you need a commission in the military, uh, somehow to become a JAG. Um, and so some people are commissioned by going to West Point, some are commissioned through ROTC, some are commissioned through OCS, and then some are direct commissionees, which is what I was, and I'll explain that in a second. But in addition to being in the military, in addition to uh, being an officer in the military, you have to complete law school. So every JAG is actually a lawyer, a graduate of an American Bar Association school, and a member of the bar of, of at least one state. In my case, I'm a, a California lawyer. So I, I um, went to law school and became a California lawyer. 
So you need th- that combination. You need that commission, and you need uh, you you need that membership in a, in a state bar. And you need to graduate from from an ABA school, and then you apply to the JAG Corps that you're interested in, uh, you know, and, and working for. And so then they, there's a selection process and a hiring process for each one of those um, JAGs. Now, for some people who are already in the military, they can apply for various programs in the military to become lawyers. So maybe they're an infantry officer or an intelligence officer, and they say, hey, I'd like to be, I'd like to be a, a lawyer. I'd like to be a JAG officer. And they can apply you know, uh, to go to law school as part of their military requirements. Once they are assessed, assessed into the JAG Corps, uh, by the way, uh, then then they're sent to various JAG schools, the JAG Basic Course, for example. So you spend about four years learning the differences where they exist between civilian practice and military practice. So you go to that uh, course, and um, there's always some portion of the course that deals with the military component, how to shoot rifles, how to march, how to land na- do land navigation, you know, how, who to salute, when not to salute, all these kinds of things, you know, JAGs have to learn just like everybody else. And so once accepted in the JAG Corps, you're usually sent to these JAG schools and, and training schools and that sort of thing. Will the mili- prior to that, like, prior to someone joining the military, will the, will the military actually pay for law school? Uh, the, what they pay for and what they won't pay for changes all the time. A person who's already in the military can apply for something called a funded legal education program. Each service has something like this where, so let's say you're an infantry officer, you want to go to JAG, uh, be a lawyer. You can apply for the JAG Corps and the JAG Corps will send you at government expense to law school. And then you end up owing like six years of your time when you graduate, mm. the funded legal education program. For the vast majority of us, so we pay for law school on our own. We either are lawyers when we come in the military, or we might be, uh, you know, graduates of the ROTC program for a given service, and we ask for an education delay, so you might not be required to to show up on the day you graduate from college. Instead, they let you run off to, you know. Uh, uh, j- um, law school and then you end up, you know, paying for it yourself. Um, Yeah. And just to get terminology right, what is the difference between judge advocate general, staff judge advocate, and a judge advocate? Okay. So each branch of service, okay, each of the branches of service has a senior lawyer that's in charge of the JAG Corps for their particular service. And those people are referred to as judge advocates general, the judge advocates general. Each service has a judge advocate general. So the Army has a judge advocate general, the Navy, Marine Corps, et cetera. I'm not exactly certain how the Space Force is working right now. My understanding is the Air Force is providing the legal support to the Space Force right now, but that's that's my understanding. The only one that's a little bit different is the Marine Corps. They refer to their judge advocate general as the SGA to the commandant, staff judge advocate to the commandant. That's just their unique way of referring to them. But each branch of service has somebody in charge of the JAG Corps, and that's the judge advocate general. Then you asked, what's a staff judge advocate? A staff judge advocate is like a regional, you know, um, senior lawyer. So every significant command has a staff judge advocate and that staff judge advocate is the senior lawyer for that command. So I'll just pick one. 18th Airborne Corps in the United States Army will have 
a staff judge advocate, is in charge of all the legal operations within the 18th Airborne Corps and Fort Bragg, let's say. So so the judge advocate general is at, at the top of the heap <laughs> for the, the services for their JAG Corps. And then the staff judge advocate, you know, it handles it at a regional or installation level. And then the judge advocate is the general membership of those in the JAG Corps. So, you know, if you have a, a young captain who's a new JAG officer, technically they're judge advocates. They're not JAG. There's only one judge advocate general. But, you know, these these terms are mingled and yeah. kind of slang. You know? Oh, that's helpful. So one of the things that I always found fascinating when interacting with JAGs and, and just with the U.S. military is is the wide range of activities that judge advocates do. Do you want to talk about the purpose of the JAG Corps and the roles and responsibilities they play? No, that's, that's a really good question. And it, it's, it gets pretty complex, but there are general practice areas. We have five core general practice areas right right now, I believe there's five. One is criminal justice. So one thing the JAG Corps handles is all the uh, criminal justice types of actions in the military. We have our own police force, right? Military police, CID. We have our own prosecutors that prosecute soldiers, you know, for violations of, of the law. So one of the, you know, functions of the JAG Corps is providing criminal justice, is what I would say. Next, we have something called legal assistance. If you're a, a young soldier and, and you enter into a, a lease with a landlord and you've got landlord-tenant issues, you can go to the JAG office and talk with the legal assistance attorneys who assist soldiers or sailors, airmen, Marines in their in their personal legal issues off post. You know, so they help them with landlords or they buy a, a car that turns out to be a lemon or something like that. You know, they can provide support. There is administrative law. You know, for example, in, in most military installations, we have a large number of civilian employees, and those employees in many cases are allowed to unionize. And so that means somebody has to handle the labor issues affiliated with that uh, civilian workforce on the installation. So the SGA provides labor lawyers to support the command and, and the installation. Um, environmental issues, right? I mean, it's really, we have a, a, a lot of difficult environmental issues because when an installation is built, it's usually in a very rural area. It's a very rural, lots of space around it. And then as, as urban areas build up around the installation, a lot of these endangered species, their habitat is reduced to the military installation. <laughs> And so suddenly you've got to, you know, balance the need to train with the need to protect a certain species of animal. So you work with the, the, uh, um, the uh, what do you call it, the field, uh, the wildlife service, the federal wildlife service, and you, you have to work with them. Um, then, uh, so I said, uh, ad law, criminal law, legal assistance. Uh, what am I miss? Contract law, right? Contract law, fiscal law. You know, lots of lots of contracts let by the military, and there's a branch of lawyers in the JAG Corps that specialize in contract law and fiscal law and that that sort of thing. So, imagine an installation is like a little city. So you have a, 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 a you know. Um, uh, district attorney to handle the the criminal load and you have like a city office or a city attorney or a county attorney handling all these issues with all these different government agencies and all these issues that come up with running an installation so a lot of different requirements and operations law finally yeah Sorry. no because yeah, this is we're in national most security interesting. yeah yeah the most important for this 
subject is probably our operations lawyers. And they are people who train extensively in the law of uh, war on, on policies such as, we mentioned a minute ago, the rules of engagement, treaties, you know, uh, UN charter, all these different sorts of legal issues the operations lawyers focus on. So the commander can turn to the lawyer and ask about the legality of a given target or what the lawyer's opinion is. You know, anyway, so uh, they advise on military operations, uh, intelligence operations, right? All there are many, many laws. You know, a lot of times people think, oh, there's no laws in special forces or there's no laws in in the, the intelligence world. That's not the case. They're, they are more, probably more regulated than any other, you know, government activity or as regulated, regulated as much as any other government activity. And, and so you have to have lawyers that understand those laws and can advise commanders on those things. Yeah. Again, one of the more fascinating aspects of the JAG Corps, because I think a lot of lawyers specialize very quickly. And in the JAG Corps, you have the opportunity to work a whole range of issues throughout your career. So you will, you know, work criminal and then you'll work administrative and you'll work operational. But um, something that I think is unique to the JAG Corps, do you want to just give an idea of what an average day looks like? Probably depends depending on what you're doing at the time. But if you're a JAG officer, um, what does a, a day look like? Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're exactly right. It does vary a lot. It depends on what your function is, but quite often your day belong, belong, um, starts off like any other member of the military <laughs> PT, you know, physical <laughs> training, you go to some physical fitness formation and conduct PT. Uh, usually that's about 6.30 in the morning or thereabouts. And you finish PT, shower, show up at work. Maybe you have a, a 9 o'clock, 8.30 first call. And then you, you go and start working on, you know, the area for which you're assigned. Now we have in the Army especially, we, we embed a lot of our attorneys in units. So if you are assigned to a tank brigade, let's say, you go out and, and do a lot of the things that those soldiers in that brigade do. If you're an infantry, you know, JAG. So you might be doing ruck marches. You might be doing land navigation. You might be going to the range and familiarizing with your weapon and all that. And then you go back to the office and, and start your legal practice, which might be trying a case. So one good thing about the JAG Corps, we, we get an inflow of a lot of new attorneys because they want the experience, you know, working, uh, you know, as, as trial attorneys, for example. So if you were deployed, let's say you were in a war zone, I get this question all the time. What would a JAG officer be doing in a war zone? Would you be, you know, uh, out on combat operations to advise on legal issues? How, how does that look? Yeah, it, that depends to a large extent on what unit you're assigned to and the size of the unit and what the units, uh, you know, wants to use you for. But in most cases, the JAG officer will be at a battalion command post or higher and providing legal advice to that commander. So, uh, notice I keep saying legal advice. That's because in the military, the commander's in charge. The commander makes the ultimate decision, not the JAG. The JAG gives advice, and in most cases, you know, it's very rare that a commander would disregard what the JAG says, uh, you know, but the JAG gives, gives advice. Anyway, so you would, you, would, you would live in your barracks or wherever, in a tent or whatever. You know, you might be living out in the sticks in a tent 
depends on the unit you're assigned, and and you would uh, come into work and begin answering legal questions. You might sit on targeting boards, so every day they might have a board where they look at possible targets to assault or attack, what weapon systems we might use. And the JAG is oftentimes sitting there thinking, hmm, I wonder if there's another way to approach this target where we might reduce you know, um, collateral damage, that sort of thing. So they sit on planning boards, they sit on targeting boards, they review orders, uh, you know, um, it's our policy in the United States that we review plans and we review execution. So you might be sitting in the, the operations center watching the TV screen, watching military operations as they happen, giving legal advice, you know, as those things happen. We try to do that in advance. We try not to give a lot of advice once the operation starts, but... You know, would a uh, JAG officer be involved in, say, the drafting of rules of engagement before an operation? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good one. We we as JAGs, we tend to be given that requirement to write the rules of engagement for a given operation. We try to make sure we're not just writing them ourselves, though, because they may not make a lot of sense to a commander if you just got a lawyer writing these things. We want commanders, we want operators, we want to incorporate everyone in the drafting of those. But yeah, so you might be writing um, rules of engagement, that sort of thing. Yeah, along those lines, can you give us a brief overview? I realize it's probably fairly complex, but can you give us a brief overview of the structure of command authority yeah. within the U.S. government for military operations? Yeah, that, that's a, a really good question. I, th I think now, I'm almost wearing my academic hat here just for a second. If you think about it, the, con the Constitution is where it all begins. Y you have to start with the Constitution in mind if you're talking about military authority. And you, if you recall, you know, Article 2 of the Constitution makes the president the commander-in-chief. You know, so um, that's the first thing. But Article 1 gives Congress the authority to raise and provide that army or to provide that Navy. It's, it's, it's up to the Congress to do that. So Congress does that through law primarily. So it's very legally intensive when you're asking about the authority to conduct military operations. Starts with the president as commander in chief. Then Congress has written law that creates the Department of Defense. It's created the, the Secretary of Defense. And so the president's you know, chief executive in, in conducting warfare reside, you know, really is the secretary of defense. And then from there, it flows down to combat and commands. This is all in law, you know, so you need, sometimes we need lawyers to help us figure out this authority chain. And, and it goes to combat and commanders. The services are provide capability. A lot of times people think, oh, the army fights the war, the Marine Corps fights the war. Truthfully, what happens is the services provide the capability. The services provide the units. So services provide the, the personnel and train them and, and all that. But the military operations are led by the combatant commanders, which are one step below the um, um, Secretary of Defense. They're all they're joint units. So they're made up of composites of Marines, Army, Navy, Air Force, et cetera, in these joint units. And there's always an SJ, he asked about SJs earlier, a staff judge advocate at the combat and command level. And then each level below that, there's some kind of a JAG officer supporting each one of those units. So I'm glad you brought up the um, 
the the fact that a JAG officer gives legal advice and that the commander is the ultimate decision maker. Similarly, in the area of policy, you have JAG officers that play a, a pretty major role in the development of policy, development of rules of engagement, um, especially when you're talking about the law of war. Uh, JAG officers are a big part of the development of the law of war, both here in the United States and internationally. Um, what is that? What does that balance look like? If you're there to give legal advice, what is the role of a JAG officer when it comes to those kind of bigger picture policy or even international law development exercises? I think part of that depends on uh, what level of uh, in the within the JAG Corps the the JAG officers working to the extent to which they provide policy. But it's a great point you you, you brought up uh, the the connection of the JAG Corps and the law of war. It's really important, I think, to remember that when the law of war was first created originally, it was largely created by warriors for warriors. You know, you had warriors creating these rules, and so they were fairly pragmatic because there was a connection between what they needed to accomplish and and what those laws were designed to protect. So I think it would be a, a mistake to not include some judge advocates in the promulgation of the law of war and all that. So we, we kind of have that that military, but not just JAGs, you know, uh, combatants. Uh, anyway, so real quick on the policy. So you, you brought up rules of engagement and the law of war. So again, the law, we, we can't deviate much from the law. You know, the law is the law that, that we're, we're, we're pretty much, you know, obligated to follow that law. But then we have the rules of engagement, which are really more policy where we're trying to incorporate that that uh, law of war, but the rules of engagement can be oftentimes be stricter as a matter of policy than the the law of war. So the law of war may allow us to do things that the rules of engagement prevent us from doing for policy reasons. So the rules of engagement take that fundamental basic law of war, and then on top of that, they overlay policy. So whatever the president wants or whatever Secretary of Defense wants, there may be limits where they further restrict you know, or authorize, you know, uh, our use of, of, of force. But this is a great question. It happened to me all the time. I, I remember being a special operations unit and the undersecretary of defense for intelligence, that person's lawyer would oftentimes visit us in this special operations unit and would say, oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do this or don't do that. I recommend against doing this. And I'd say, Where's this coming from? I don't know of a certain le- I don't know of a, a, a of a legal restriction, the you know in terms of what you're just you're describing. So here we have the lawyer, you know, telling me that I should do things or not do things, and uh, based on policy. And I I remember asking this lawyer once. I said, "Well, are you a lawyer? Are you a policy person?" And he said, "You can't distinguish the two at at this level. It'd be policy and law are so intertwined." You know, that you have to be cognizant of both. Yeah. And along those lines, speaking of the law of war specifically, the United States has a robust um, JAG Corps. They have a robust military legal program. A lot of our allies are uh, on those same lines. What about a country like Russia? We're seeing, you know, reports in Russia where um, obvious war crimes are being committed, obvious violations of the law of war. Do they have a JAG Corps? Are there people on the ground that are saying, hey, you shouldn't do that? Or, and, you know, or, or is there just um, no one giving that kind of advice? Yeah, great question. So uh, I'm, not an, uh, I'm not an expert on the Russian JAG Corps, but I did look into this because when I started seeing some of the, um, you know, reports of war crimes, I just curiously 
wondered if they have a JAG Corps in, in the Russian Army. The best I can tell, they do not, They uh, from what I read. So if a, if a Russian soldier gets into some kind of a trouble, uh, they have civilian lawyers prosecute the crime, you know, whatever that might be, but they don't have a core of legal advisors standing there with the commander, you know, advising the commander on whether or not they think these targets are legal or not legal. And, uh, you know, in our, in, in, you asked this earlier, in our army or our Marine Corps, Navy, et cetera, you know, from the day you go to basic training, you start to get, le- uh, you know, um, lessons and lectures on the law of war. When you're in basic training in the military, some JAG officer assigned to that military installation will come in there and and teach the law of war to soldiers in our army. So from the very get-go, the soldiers know that we're, we're, it's our policy to adhere to the law of war, and they get classes by a professional JAG corps you know, who's also advising the commander on this very thing. You work with foreign partners, too. Um, and you have great familiarity with the U.S. Uh, JAG Corps and, and just uh, U.S. military in general. What do you think that does for the culture of accountability, culture of discipline? Do you think that there's a a major difference there between countries that have this as a prominent part of their approach to military um, operations? Or how, how does that work? Yeah, no, I, I believe that 100%. The commander can set a climate, you know, of adherence to the law of war by incorporating the JAG and in, in many of these training opportunities. And I should say a lot of our allies, and you said this, I, I want to echo this, a lot of our allies are really good about this. I mean, they, we have um, in our own JAG Corps, in our own JAG schools, we have international students all the time, you know, from all the different branches you know, the JAG Corps exchanges and, 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 and mingles people within our schools uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that, but the commander can create a climate by, you know, getting that, that JAG officer in there and, and planning and execution and all that sort of thing to make sure that uh, the commander sees. I, I talked to General Keeler once. He used to command U.S. STRATCOM years ago. And he told me he, he was a solid, this a nuclear nuclear forces. He, he is a uh, solid believer in incorporating JAGs in every way possible in the nuclear uh, targeting world. Because he said, if, not, if for no other reason, he said, and I thought this was interesting. He said, for the young airman that's in the Air Force down in the bottom of a you know, missile silo, who's might be called upon one day to fire an intercontinental ballistic missile, uh, that person should know that there's a JAG officer somewhere that's reviewing all of these targets. And when they make that decision to participate in that activity, they'll know that there's somebody there. So from, from a morale standpoint or from a, uh, you know, um, just a, a mental wellness standpoint almost, it's good that they know that, there's, that all these targets are being reviewed by JAGs. That was kind of an interesting take on it, but. No, that's great. You know, I'm sitting here. Our listeners won't be able to see this, but I have a a pocket constitution that I um, from my time at the FBI Academy. And I know, you know, in the FBI, we would emphasize the importance of the oath of office that we took and, and to support and defend the Constitution. And as we've talked about many times, you know, all officers of the federal and state government uh, in the United States take an oath to support and defend that Constitution. So from your time 
and experience in service, uh, what's the importance and relevance of the oath of office, particularly with to the JAG Corps? Yeah, no, it's extremely important. We, you know, we take uh, an oath to a set of ideals or ideas, not to a person, right? I mean, that's the, like you said, not just, that's not unusual to Jack Rats. Everybody in, in, in federal service pretty much or, or state service has to do that. But we, we, we definitely take it very serious. What's unique, in my opinion, about the JAG Corps is for most of us in the military, when we, when we talk about defending the Constitution, we're talking about defense, defending it from outside threats, usually. In the military, we're, we're referring to outside threats. But in the JAG Corps, we have a special role, and that is we have to try to make sure that Constitution is being uh, adhered to within our own ranks. You know, so we are looking within you know, not just without, and it it's, uh, guides us every day. Notice when one of you asked about the um, authority to uh, conduct military operations, the place I started was the Constitution. Right. And that's yeah. the way we do things, you know, and we're, you know, people in the JAG Corps are members of two great professions. We're members of the military and we're members of the legal profession, and our job is to try to make sure that we adhere to that Constitution ourselves, not just defending it against an outside attack. You know, as a, as an FBI agent, I remember um, pretty vividly the 9-11 and, and all of the fallout that happened after 9-11. And the U.S. government received criticism for its lack of interagency cooperation. And for me, I noticed a distinct difference prior to 9-11 and after at the level and focus on interagency cooperation. Um, what's your experience within the JAG Corps and the military? Yeah, no, it's really interesting. At first, as the military uh, matured, we went from, you know, very service-specific Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, to the joint world. And I'll get to your question here in a second, interagency question. We, 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 we tried very hard to move away from a service-specific military to a joint, you know, team. You know, the Army provides capability, the Navy provides capability, et cetera. So we, we worked really hard on this idea of jointness. But it's of late, the focus, I think, is more on this idea of interagency, what you're talking about. More and more, we're focused on interagency. You know, we have all these acronyms in the military. One of our favorite acronyms for the interagency concept is the DIME model, which is diplomacy. The, the, the D stands for diplomacy, State Department. The I stands for intelligence or information, cyber, intelligence agencies, M for the military, E for the economy, and then we added LE for law enforcement. And what we, if you go to any command anymore, if you go overseas to any joint task force, they're not joint task forces anymore, they're interagency task force. So you may have a military commander over a, a task force, but there are people from the FBI, from the various intelligence agencies, you know, from um, the Department of State. We have all sorts of people to make this team because we have learned over time that to be effective, you really need a whole of government approach. It's it's not enough just to have just the military. You know, in, in fact, you know, there are tools that the law enforcement agents have that, that we don't have. And you can only tap into those tools if they're included in the command. So, yeah, no, I would totally agree. Like I said, you know, after you know, World War II, we went more joint, right? And then we, we worked in the joint community. But now the effort is interagency to get better with that. So I would agree with you. Mike, this has been a great discussion. We thank you for your time and insight on the JAG Corps program. We look forward to having you back on the podcast again soon. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. 
This has been an episode of In the Interest of National Security. Our guest has been Professor Mike Schmidt. The views expressed on this show are those of the host or our guest and not Utah Valley University or the Center for National Security Studies. Today's episode was produced by Taylin Peterson, Baxter Elwood, Dylan Marley, Nathan Griffith, Joshua Coyman, Brighton Nelson, and our music was produced by Parker Rudd. Follow us on Instagram at iins.podcast to receive news and updates regarding future content. You can also join us by subscribing at Spotify or iTunes and become part of this vibrant and growing community. Thanks for listening. We look forward to having you join us next time for another episode of In the Interest of National Security.